But what I'd like to do is to continue from last week and, uh, when we were talking about don't make anything and it will include free attention. Um, you can kind of shape things so that it can be anything you want it to be. Um, but in order to do that, um, I'll have to review a little bit of what we said last week. Obviously, uh, it'll be limited. Uh, don't make anything uh, is a phrase that was used by one of my teachers, who was a Korean Zen master. And uh, he gave me a calligraphy which, was, which said, don't make anything, only go straight for the next 10,000 years. Try, 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 exclamation point. Uh, <clears throat> doesn't mean anything to you if you weren't here last week. Um, don't make anything. What, what's being referred to here is when we take the stuff of life, let's say our feelings, uh, bodily conditions, thoughts, ideas, the situation, whatever happens to us, uh, and we turn it into the building blocks for our story. Or so they become the ingredients to enhance and enrich, elaborate, and continue our story. Is everyone clear on our story? No competitors for the Academy Award. You're playing all the parts, so am I. You direct it, you produce it, you're the star, you play the bit parts, and it's all about you and me, over and over and over and over again, with a lot of revision. As we grow older, we change what happened in the past, so it's uh, appropriate for what's happening now, maybe unwittingly. Uh, and so uh, there is a, a strong tendency in the human mind to make things, to turn something into... Um, well, in the extreme, really, it, I don't know if you can test it uh, tonight, but as the mind has the ability uh, to just uh, make anything out of nothing and then to start thinking about it. It can just make up, it has complete poetic license. It can just make up whatever it wants to, and then it can start thinking about it. And before you know it, you have a reality that's quite convincing. If it isn't true for you, I apologize, but it seems to be true for some of us. Uh, only go straight. Um, there are a number of ways to uh, talk about that. And that um, sometimes you perhaps you've heard the phrase, the, the true way, that is a, uh, the path of Dharma, sometimes called the true way or the great way. Uh, what's true about it is when you're true to yourself, that is, uh, when you're true to what is. For example, right at this moment, uh, life is a certain way for each one of you, isn't it, right now? Isn't your body a certain way? You don't have to put it into words, but it's mm, this way. And you're in a, there's a certain emotional state that you have, it's that way, and your mind is a certain... So that's what is. It's just the way it is right at this moment. And when we're squarely intimate with that what is, that is where mindful, aware, attentive, whatever language you like, uh, then that is the true way. Uh, sometimes you'll see it capitalized and people think that it's sort of like way off in some unreachable future. 
and that if we practice hard enough, we'll get to the true way. But um, the path is always exactly where you are standing. It's just a metaphor path. I mean, you are the path. You're walking on yourself because it's your life that is uh, exclusively the materials that are used uh, for practice. So if we put it together, um, don't make anything. Only go straight. Try it next 10,000 years. In other words, right effort. A bit of hyperbole, but right effort. Okay, some examples. Maybe this will help me. How many people were not here last week? Okay. <coughs> Those of you who were here, you're going to have to hear some of it again, but it, I'll uh, use some different examples. I'd like to actually uh, develop it a bit more than we were able to last week. Start with simple things. Um, don't make hot, don't make cold would mean when the temperature is what we call hot, let's say it's a certain, it's 103, but then the mind makes hot out of it. Do you know what I mean? Italics capitalized in quotes. Hot, exclamation point. The mind makes hot, and uh, who, is, who is hot? I am hot. Or is the problem, so there's temperature, that's a fact, that's what is. But then the mind is going to, when it makes hot, uh, as in one teaching story, then uh, it kills you. You kill yourself with that because then you really get it, can get into torment. So in addition to the actual temperature, you have in a sense a psychological uh, projection that's made out of it by the mind. Okay. Same with cold. Um, for practice, if you make difficult, if you talk about your practice as difficult, let's say your practice is just the way it is. Let's say you sit every day and you do retreats now and then and uh, you come to interviews once in a while and you read a few books, uh, you do a few good deeds, give gifts once in a while, practice metta, insight, the breath. Uh, whatever it is, it's just that. I mean, the mind wanders that and then it comes back that many times. You see exactly what you see. But then the mind can make difficult out of that. Somewhere it has a norm that it decides that things are difficult for me, my practice. This practice is very difficult. Or the mind can make easy. It can say, oh, it's really easy. Uh, there are a couple of books. There's one by Sylvia Borstein, which is uh, emphasizing how easy it is. But if you read uh, Joe Quebec, she's always talking about how arduous it is. Well, which one is correct? I'll let you work that out. Maybe both of them are. Maybe neither of them are. Um, the important point, it's not to uh, take language away from us so that we just babble with each other. Uh, it's when the making of difficult and easy or hot or cold becomes absorbed in our story. It becomes a piece of our biography. And then it's very, very different. It's not simply let's say, communicating with a friend saying, well, you know, this uh, insight meditation requires a lot of effort. It's difficult. It's not that you can never talk that way. But what I'm talking about is when people make difficult out of what they're doing, and then as the uh, teaching goes, if you make difficult, then you have difficult. So that uh, these are all concepts, thoughts, and they beget other concepts that are in the same family like hopeless, like I'm never going to do this again. 
and so forth. So, um, uh, some of insight and some of wisdom is insightfully seeing what the mind does with our experience. How the mind uh, is perfectly able to name and label what's happening to us and then start thinking about the name and label that it has come up with about what's happening to us. And then before you know it, you have you could have torment. Take confusion. <coughs> Don't make confusion. Okay. We are sometimes confused. Every human being, at least most of us, probably are from time to time confused. But when I say don't make confusion, what that means is maybe the mind is confused. Let's say it's hesitant, uh, contradictory, uh, ambivalent, and so forth. It feels a little cloudy. But do you have to be confused by the fact that the mind is confused? I don't think so. In other words, you can clearly understand that your mind is confused. It's still confused, but now it doesn't escalate. It doesn't become really confused. So, uh, well, we'll have a, an opportunity to talk this out. For some of you, especially new people, this may sound, I don't know what it sounds like, idiotic? or uh, <laughs> It does sound like cuckoo. Uh, okay, maybe I ought to take that seriously. Let's, let me give you a more homemade example from our own culture. Um, Let's say you're watching a basketball game, or whatever sport. And let's say it's basketball, and you know it well. You know the ins and outs of it. You know all the players. You know the rules. Uh, you're an adept at it. And you have a giant screen, perfect reception, perfect sound. Um, if the screen were on, it would be just basketball game, if there was no commentator. And if you know everything, you're perfectly able to make sense out of what's happening. Because you know the rules, you know all the players, and you can see right in front of you what's happening. But it doesn't end there, because there's someone who's rather well paid to be the commentator, right? And he's telling you what's happening. Okay. Now, in the telling, when that telling gets blended in with the seeing, it gives birth to something else. Do you, do you see the difference? That is, now, if the commentator is being paid by one team or another, uh, perhaps they color the description one way or another. Okay. So then if you try this, you can play with this. Turn the sound off, and then you get back to just basketball. Turn the sound back on, and then it's basketball plus some commentator who's paid to make the game for you. And he's very skillful at it in terms of use of language. So. Who's the commentator for us? It's our mind. So things are happening, and there's something that's sometimes even called a commentator. And it's that part of the mind that is giving you an ongoing critique of what's going on. It's naming things, labeling things, and making up stories about what's really happening. Now, if you don't examine your mind, you may not know what I'm talking about, and you take that to be reality. It is a reality. It's one which is uh, put together by thought, put together by thinking, where thinking will uh, jump out in front of you, tell you what's happening, and then hide. And then you have that description as taken as uh, actual fact, where really it's um, come about through conceptualization. So I hope that's a little bit more clear.
Um, the reason I feel this simple idea of don't make anything is useful is because it's quite practical. Uh, take the weather. It's something you can all experiment with. There is, it is possible to learn how to discern the difference between the body sweating or shivering or hot or whatever. And then with, if you pay attention, you'll be able to see there's quite a difference between just the fact of how the body is and then what the mind does about that fact and then what that outcome is. It can go from discomfort to torment in a few seconds. Okay. So one use of insight, uh, it's a kind of wisdom. It's being able to see uh, what the mind is doing and, how the, and what the effect is. It's kind of cause and effect. Um, okay. I hope that gives you a little bit of a sense of it. Now, uh, let's up the ante a little bit. When I was uh, in Korea with this very same teacher, um, I was there for a year, and there were three of us, three Americans, and uh, traditionally, at about midpoint of the year, we did a 90-day retreat in this monastery up in the mountains. And what, we, we, what we didn't know is that it's 90 days, and on day 45, uh, it's a very old Korean tradition, uh, they have one week without sleep. <laughs> we didn't know, when we signed up, we didn't know about that. <laughs> And uh, we thought it was a joke, you know, to kind of uh, test these Americans to see uh, how they do. But it wasn't a joke. They were really quite serious. Uh, so what it is, you, many of you have done retreats, and you know you sit and walk. But at a certain point, it does come to an end, right? You have a nice, nice little cozy bed. This way, they really meant it. For seven days, you are not allowed to lie down. And so uh, the first day, to about uh, early evening, it was, we were just, we were ready to get on the next plane and get out of there. We were somewhere between hysterical and tormented. Uh, and the key phrase was, seven days without sleep. <laughs> uh, we just kept repeating that to each other when we could sneak away. <laughs> uh, and it was alarming, you know. Uh, and we didn't see how it could be done. We thought, and we started, it's barbarian, it's inhuman. It's okay. Okay. So um, I went in and spoke to my teacher, uh, who was, uh, by the way, there were about 25 monks and two lay people. I was one of the lay people and an 86-year-old grandmother. They let her sleep for about four hours once a night. She was the happiest, had the deepest practice of all of us. She'd been practicing a long time and was just radiant, but she did need some rest, and that was fine. But, you know, they didn't give us that. We wouldn't have taken it because we, we were carrying the American flag, you know. <laughs> uh, we can do whatever you throw up, you know. We're a superpower. <laughs> well, we weren't so super. But, I mean, uh, so I, I went to this teacher, same one that I mentioned last week, and I told him about, um, my God, you know, seven days without sleep. And he listened, and then he just smiled, and he said, don't make seven days without sleep. He said, that weighs a ton. He said, that's what you're carrying around. 
Just take it one sitting at a time, one breath at a time, one walking at a time. Just don't, because what we were doing is we were ahead of ourselves. We had, cre we had made a concept, uh, seven days without sleep, and we were carrying that around. So we weren't fully in the present. We were in a present that was tremendously poisoned by a, uh, a horrible idea that we wouldn't be able to sleep for seven days. And he just, uh, just took that away from us. He just laughed and he said, just uh, take it moment by moment. Just keep it simple, stick to the present moment, and just keep practicing. And it's amazing what a difference it made. I can't begin to tell you. Now, it was not a piece of cake. I'm not, it was difficult. Um, they use a stick to wake you up. You have to ask for it. You have to, it's called a stick of compassion, and you have to say, you know, please whack me. But sometimes, if you're really a problem, they'll tell you, please ask us to hit you with the stick. <laughs> So they're saying, please, so, okay, kind of some kind of pseudo-compassion. Um, so you're not allowed to sit down except when you're sitting, for obvious reasons, because as soon as you get to the ground, it just looks so good. You, know, you just want to lie down. Um, of course, you have your meals, you go to the bathroom, and you sleep, eat, and meditate in the same, you have a mat that folds up, you sit on it, you eat on it, and at night you unfold it and you go to sleep on it. So there were about 25 of us going through that. There were some nuns. They would um, have a sleep in a different part of the monastery. Um, so that simple piece of advice, just don't make that, which we didn't realize we were making, uh, ease things quite a bit. Can you see what? It's just common sense. So it has endless applications. Let me give you a, a smaller one that happened a few years ago at IMS, Inside Meditation Society in Barry. Uh, we informed people that there was going to be construction going on during the retreat. So everyone who came to the retreat knew that there would be the sound of saws and whatever uh, instruments that are used to build. And the people accepted. They came to the retreat anyway. And then, of course, once the retreat began and, the sound, and uh, all these sounds of construction began, people would come into interviews and they were ranged from furious to desperate to uh, just incredibly frustrated and irritated. Um, and my, I tried to be helpful. In a few cases, I was able to. Um, as you can guess now, it's don't make noise. What they were doing was turning sound into noise. All that's happening is, woof, woof, woof. That's all that's happening. But then, uh, if you have come up to a meditation retreat and you want it to be silent, and it isn't, for whatever reason, but of course many people had that expectation, even though they knew. And so, what is just pure sound, that's all it is, was turned into noise because there was resistance to it, because there was, um, uh, there was a strong yearning to have silence. Meditation retreats are silent. It shouldn't be this way. And then when we would say, but it is, isn't it? I know, but it shouldn't be. But it is. Uh, the lucky ones accepted that, and they saw, they saw that the problem really wasn't in the ear, and the problem really wasn't in the saw or the uh, 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 hammer or whatever it is that was going on. The problem was in the mind. Because when the sound comes into the ear, and that's the place to practice always. It's not CIMC. 
or IMS, or the Himalayas, or a cave. It's the place to practice is always going to be the same place. It's how the, when the world impinges on your mind. When a sound comes in, a smell comes in, a sight comes in, etc. Many people want a, a peace and silence and th- keep running, to, trying to find the, the quiet and peaceful places in order to get peace and silence. And they can re- go on forever because that's not where it is. The only, the only real peace is in your mind. Now, it can be a, it's convenient to get a stage set that's quiet and or is external silence to facilitate the development of a silence that isn't dependent on conditions. Okay. But if you get too hooked on these particular settings, then you've created a new kind of handicap for yourself. You've become a hothouse plant. The only way you can ever have peace is if you go to IMS, CIMC, you know, all these initial places. <laughs> but that most of your life is spe- spent elsewhere. So practice is always in the same place. It's in the mind. And that's why you're always on the path. As soon, in that moment that you wake up and you're attentive, you're, that's the true way. Right there in that moment. And with practice, that moment becomes more continuous. More, it becomes more of a reflex, and your reflexes become stronger and more rapid, more natural, so that you're able to uh, experience the world and be right there as it happens. Um, and when the mind gets lost and starts making things up about what's happening uh, in ways that are uh, causing suffering, you can, you're more likely to see it. Now, when you make noise out of sound, then you have noise, and then you have a problem. If it's just pure sound, it's not a problem. It's just what it is. So can you see that? That's a slightly more homely uh, example. Um, Let me give you a really big one. In my mind, it's the biggest. Um, I'm just going to go into it a bit. Maybe when we go to uh, free attention or choiceless awareness, as I feel uh, you know, we will say something about that within this context. Uh, perhaps we'll have time to come back to it. Uh, to me, one of the most um, economical and useful ways of talking about enlightenment comes from a Chinese master named Lin Chi. And uh, Lin Chi talked about the journey as becoming a true person of no rank. A true person of no rank. What is he talking about? Is he in the military? And he would say, this true person of no rank is pouring forth all day long, you know, through the eyes, through the mouth, through the limbs, through the body. in a way, they're synonymous. That is, uh, a true person is a person of no rank. Now, what is, what is meant here by rank is this very powerful tendency that we have. We make rank. We make superiority, we make inferiority, and we make equality. So, to paraphrase uh, Lin Chi, he is saying, don't make anything. Um, now, the suffering that we have, so much of it comes from the comparing mind. 
where uh, the ego is always on the line. It's extraordinarily vulnerable, what we call ego, or the I consciousness, I, not the physical I, I, the letter I, or selfing. Uh, the ego is extraordinarily vulnerable. Um, it's humiliated very easily, often countless times during a day. We uh, use an enormous amount of energy to maintain, protect, enhance uh, this enclosure put together by thought that we call me and self. Now, those of you who are very new to this practice, this is not meant to be a belief that you subscribe to. I'm not asking you to believe this. Uh, and it's not that we're trying to annihilate this sense of self, just get rid of it. Not at all, but get to know it. Whatever it is you think of as being you, me, your personal identity, myself, just in very ordinary terms, forget about Buddhism. Uh, a life of awareness is starting to look at that, is starting to insightfully see what do we mean when we talk that way. We sound as if we know what we're talking about. Start paying attention as to what that means. Um, now, the crux of the Buddha's teaching is don't make me or mine ever. What he's talking about is uh, liberation, is liberation from this powerful tendency that all of us have to attach to anything whatsoever in this world and make me out of it or mine out of it. We'll identify with it and use that as the materials to enhance this sense of self. And then certain things belong to that self that we've just created. It's all put together by thought, once again. And it's uh, enriched with images and very deep conditioning, and we've been doing it for a long time. Liberation is liberation from that illusion. Now, it's not for you to believe that, because that won't help you. That's just, it'll be another belief for the ego to now uh, put it, make part of its resume. I heard about the Buddhist teaching of not-self. I believe in it. I belong in the Buddhist club now, and I feel secure. <laughs> and it, it won't last, because uh, it's just another, uh, just more uh, words. Just empty air, really. So what the practice is about, the words are pointing to something. They're pointing to you and to me. Uh, to take a look, to try to understand, uh, is there some truth to that? Is that really what the self is? Is it just a succession of, um, it's like a computer, it's constantly computing and making up stuff about who it is and what it is and what it might be if it meditates more, will, it creates a notion of what it will finally become and what it used to be and so forth. Is that really true? You have to see this by first-hand investigation. Freedom from your suffering can't come any other way that I know of. Okay, so what Lin Chi is saying is, it's just a very economical way of putting a huge amount of suffering that we humans go through is because we're constantly ranking ourselves and ranking one another. So that somebody's always, we're experiencing somebody as superior to us. We're experiencing someone as inferior to us. And we're experiencing other people as equal or whole categories of people. In Cambridge, we work very hard to be equal, you know, to prove that we're equal. But it can be just as tiring. Is that what your expression meant? Yeah. But it's still part of the same game. Can you see that? That is, uh, working to prove that you're, I'm no better than you, you know, helping the, carrying the luggage for the bell, bellhop in the hotel, <laughs> even though you have three PhDs and an MD, you know, to prove that you're just a regular guy. 
uh, it's the same thing as having contempt for that person who's carrying it. Moreover, what is his mind doing in that moment? So the problem, uh, let's say taking work for the moment, so this, this is really concrete for us, is that we make status out of function. We make status out of function. Let's say we look at the work work uh, place. Uh, a job is composed of certain functions. And I hope that meditation is helping you to carry out those functions even cl- more clearly. And uh, because you're encouraged, as you know, uh, to do everything in an undivided, wholehearted, and mindful way. Right? So, begin to learn how to live consciously and that no activity during the day is trivial. Everything is uh, precious. And let's say you come to work. So um, it is possible to be excellent at the function of your job and the suffering doesn't come in there. The suffering comes in because we then make or manufacture or fabricate or fashion a status out of it, which means I'm a waiter, a little bit no good. I'm president of the United States. I'm the king of the world. I'm this, I'm that. Uh, and we jockey for, well, you know, do I have to lay it out? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Okay. So the suffering isn't in the job, in, the, in just carrying out the function. The suffering comes in in the way in which we endlessly are comparing and extracting rather severe implications from whatever we're doing in terms of who it is we are. Uh, one of the great teachers of the 20th century, uh, many of us feel this, he was a man in India, uh, he basically had a little cigarette shop. I mean, they didn't uh, know about all this other stuff. <laughs> and uh, it was just in a slum in Bombay, and he had a little, um, I don't know what to call it, a little on top, he had a little area over the shop. And when there were no customers, he'd go up there and meditate. When they would come, he'd go down. And uh, he would smoke. And people came from all over the world. Many Westerners came to spend time with him. Um, He was (coughs) married. He had raised children. Um, In one sense, uh, you know, he just had a a little shop in Bombay. Uh, But he was free of that. So that uh, the practice, independent of what you, you see, if otherwise what tends to happen is there's the suffering of being superior, there's the suffering of being inferior, and there's even the suffering of being equal. If the people were on top, were having such a wonderful time, many of you wouldn't be here. It goes on forever, it's insatiable. In other words, the, on the, the ladder of life there, there are no rungs in a sense, or the rungs just go on forever. When are you ever high enough? When is there no one on top of you or superior to you? And so it's stepping out of that game. It's not just occupation and conventional status. Um, The reason I love this way of putting it, because I (laughs) use it to practice with. I've used it for years. And it's going on all the time. You can feel how you feel when you're in the midst of people. And you can see whether the mind is concocting some sense of location, whether you're locating yourself as being, uh, it's not necessarily in words or so literal. It can be quite subtle. But in some way, you're feeling fine because you're up here, or not so fine, shaky, you're not sure where you are. Uh, And everything we say, perhaps riding on it, is uh, some evaluation. So it's quite a practical, tangible thing. Our practice is becoming a true person, 
of no rank. And that's inside. It's inside. You can be chairman of the board of the biggest company and be free. So it's not, it's not your outer rank that's the suffering. It's the fact of what we do with it inwardly. It's again, we always come back to the heart, to the mind. Uh, I just thought of another one from the same teacher. Of uh, those of you who were not here last week, the, the reason I'm using this teacher is um, there are a number of teachers who I benefited from tremendously. He was one of them, and I'm, uh, as one way of showing gratitude, I've taken certain, f for each one, a phrase that was very helpful that they used in teaching, and I'm making a talk up about it. It's just for me. It has nothing to do with you, really. <laughs> uh, and so he used, I always like this, don't make anything, and so now you're getting it dropped on you. Uh, one time in New York, it was the o opening of the New York Zen Center, and it was very festive. And a number of us Westerners were there. We were his students, and we were setting up this, um, it was a celebration of the opening of this meditation center. And many elderly Korean women came, and one with gifts and a lot of love, and one had this big package of plastic flowers, which she um, gave to uh, a friend of mine, a Westerner, to put on the altar, because we were helping. And he looked at the plastic flowers, and he hid them under the clothes, because it was, he felt it was embarrassing you know, to put plastic flowers on the altar. And another Korean woman came and found them, you know, under the clothes, and she took them and put them on the altar. And so this fellow was really upset, and he went to our teacher, and he just said, uh, can't we just take those plastic flowers off the altar? Uh, he said, it's such a beautiful altar, but the plastic flowers spoil the whole thing. So our teacher said, your mind is plastic. No. <laughs> <laughs> He said, this woman is just full of love and compassion, and she's sharing, uh, th this, is what sh this is her way of sharing it. And you have made plastic, so you are plastic. He says, you're attached to, but plastic is okay, natural flowers are okay. You have to understand the situation. There are times where uh, no plastic flowers, but can you see where this is not one of them, where it's fine to have plastic flowers? So you can see the endless applications to it. Let's get to um, free attention or choiceless awareness. Um, as I look around, I know there are a fair number of you who have practiced here for a while and have done retreats. It will mean more to you. I, I don't know how to bridge that gap for those of you who have not uh, done uh, very much practice here, but I can do my best to convey what I'm trying to say. And then if you don't understand it, if you keep coming back, you'll grow into it you'll understand it in retrospect. Uh, the t there are two main practices comprise what we do in this uh, strange building. One is a concentration practice where you take one thing and you attend to it and you come back to it over and over and over again. You narrow down the field of life and you focus on, we often use the breath as you know, or uh, loving-kindness, metta. But I would say the breath is something that pretty much everyone shares. That uh, simple activity of putting, uh, not easy, but simple, not difficult either. I have to watch out. <laughs> I've created a Frankenstein. 
um, of coming back to the breathing over and over again, uh, those of you who have done it know that little by little the mind starts to become much more calm and peaceful. It's, it's lawful. It will just happen. If you do it, it will happen. If you don't do it, it won't happen. Okay. So uh, you go to the breathing, the mind runs away, gets preoccupied with something else. Gently you come back to the breath. You're with three or four breaths, it runs away. You bring it back gently, without any blame. And little by little, it learns how to come to rest in the breathing. And then the mind feels more peaceful, more spacious, more calm. And it's now fit to do the second kind of practice that we do. In the second kind of practice, which we sometimes call a free attention or choiceless awareness, as I'm using it, they're synonymous. I think we call it choiceless awareness more often. Once your mind calms down a bit and gets more concentrated, then uh, the second mode of practice is one where um, it's the art of not making anything. That is, you now, it's very different than the first uh, skill that you're learning, which is to stay with one thing. The second mode of practice is more, uh, it has some of that concentration in it, of course, but it's more attention. And in attention, uh, there's no narrowing down. It's, there's no horizons or boundaries. It's just an open attentiveness, and not to anything in particular. You, it's not easy to do. I don't encourage you to do it until your mind becomes somewhat concentrated and calm. Because what will happen is you'll just get lost in it. But the day comes where you can do it. Eventually, it becomes effortless, where you're just attentive. So. Let's say you're listening. Let's say you're sitting. We'll limit this to the sitting practice. You're sitting and you're listening very carefully. But what you're listening to is not anything in particular. You're just in a state of receptivity, openness. Uh, you allow life to come to you in whatever shape and form it does. And you have no agenda. Choiceless awareness, maybe this will help. Um, it's choiceless in that we don't have a particular agenda of what we're supposed to be paying attention to. What we're paying attention to is what life provides us with in a given moment. And we never know what that's going to be. So it's a rather different skill. So the mind that has become concentrated using the simple in and out breath, for example, now has to learn how to be supple, supple, pliable, in addition uh, to having that strength of being able to be with something once it's there. So. Of course, objects come into the field of awareness, and then uh, we're mindful of them, and we see them come and go, come and go. Often it's the breath, but it could be sound, it could be a, a fear, it could be a mood, it could be a bodily condition, it could be an image, it could be silence itself. More and more it becomes silence itself. Okay. So it's choiceless in that we don't have uh, a project or a particular problem that we're going to solve. Now, this is a difficult one for many people uh, at the beginning. People come to meditation to solve a particular problem. And when you go on retreat, often people have on their mind, I'm going to go on this retreat and I'll finally be able to work out. Should I quit this job and tell him where to go or uh, should I stay with it for another month? Should I go to graduate school? Should we get married? Or uh, I can't stand this, whatever it is you can't stand. And so we have, we have a, some calculation going on in the mind. The mind uh, 
is willing to come to the retreat, but it wants, it's making a deal. In other words, I will come here and go through all this sitting and walking, but I want uh, my confusion to lift at the end of it, or I want uh, this decision to be clear as day. So when, it, so when the retreat ends, I know exactly what to do. And if, if the mind is like that, of course, it's got choices. It's calculating, scheming. It's in business. It wants to get something out of it. Okay. As useful as that may be in business, it's not useful for this. Okay. But now, perhaps even the most important meaning of choiceless, and here's where, is typically the mind is for or against what's happening to it. Right? Isn't that? That's pretty obvious. All day long, if you're new to this, check and you'll see. Sounds, we like them or we don't. Smells, food, we're all day long. We're um, for or against what, what our experience is. Uh, in this practice of choiceless awareness or free attention, put in other terms, it's don't make for, don't make against. Now, that's a hard one to learn. Don't make for and don't make against. That means what you're learning is to allow whatever is there to be there for as long as it wants to be there and for you to observe it in a non-judgmental, unbiased, non-discriminatory way, to just give it full attention. You're not trying to fix it. You're not trying to make it go away. You're not trying to make it stay longer. If you like it, you want it to stay longer. You're not trying to lop off part or paste on some. Uh, it's the art of allowing. It's the art of allowing the mind to just flower, for the mind to just empty itself of itself. And it does it quite naturally. It doesn't need our help. But it's quite a high art to learn how to, it's the art of non-doing, of learning how to uh, take it easy and do nothing. That's also Lin Chi said that. Those of you who are writing notes, Lin Chi. Okay. Those notes won't help you. You're much better off watching your mind, but, you know, it's okay. Um, so it's a radical new attitude that has to be learned, because we, uh, we've had a lot of experience of uh, making for or against. This is good. I like it. I want to be with it. I want it to last forever. I hate this. Okay, now, in choiceless awareness, for example, what uh, the essence of that is not getting a particular experience. It's not even getting peace, maybe eventually. But the peace comes out of not trying to get peace, but learning how to be with what's there. For example, can you imagine a person uh, coming anywhere near liberation, however you want to define liberation, freedom from suffering, if they don't, if they're unable to look at fear, if they're unable to look at anger, if they're unable to look at loneliness? How could that be? Do you think that, that uh, we just skip that and just go to the, to the good stuff? It's not possible. You can't cheat in this game. There are no shortcuts. It's about you and you. The game, we've been playing the games already. The practice, to me, is r a rather ingenious stage set. All the different forms that have been invented over thousands of years in Asia uh, to help us do a rather simple but not apparently easy thing, which is to take a look at ourselves. So one thing we do, we do it together. That makes it easier. It's hard to do alone until you can do it alone. And we have all kinds of forms and techniques and methods and encouragement and 
uh, images and whatever it takes, chanting, incense. Uh, I'm sure there are new forms being invented right now, <laughs> uniquely American. Uh, but finally, uh, what it's about is we human beings are very tender and very uh, vulnerable. And we're not here forever. All of us will die, and we know it. And we seem to cause a lot of suffering for ourselves and for others. We don't seem to know how to live with each other. Everyone has tried many, many ways to, of course, um, not suffer. We don't want to suffer. But so much of what we do seems to bring suffering anyway. Now, in the Dharma, that's called ignorance. That is, setting in motion causes that don't bring happiness, even though we want happiness, is called ignorance, because we don't understand that what we're doing is not going to lead to happiness. Wisdom is seeing that. Wisdom is beginning to see that. Okay, now the only way you can see that is that you have to stop making I like and I don't like, because that's what we're already doing. You don't have to come here. You know how to do that. You're a master, and I don't even know most of you. We all know how to do that how to avoid, how to deny, how to explain away, how to project onto other people. They're the problem. It's their fault. We've used an enormous amount of energy uh, to delay the inevitable, which is just a simple attention uh, to our own life as we live it, to our own experience. The teachings of the Buddha are saying that that's the only way to get free, is you have to come to understand yourself. And the only way you can come to understand yourself is you have to learn how to observe and observation here has to be, uh, it's more like a naturalist. In this sense, it has an affinity with science. Uh, can you observe? Just observe. It's more or an aesthetic. Uh, if any of you like to watch birds, here it's, it's mind-watching. But uh, even if you're motivated to do it, you'll see, if, you, if you're new to the practice, you'll see that there's a lot of things that come up in the mind that we don't want to go near. We don't want to have anything to do with it. And the practice and teachings and everything that goes on here and in places like this is designed to help us in a humane way, but efficiently and effectively, uh, to begin to turn towards where we must turn, towards ourselves, to see it. So um, this particular practice of just sitting is uh, difficult because it's so simple. Uh, Put in other words, when we say don't make anything, and let's say choiceless awareness is the art of not making anything. It's just sitting there. Just sitting there. And you're sitting and breathing, and before long the mind does make. I like this. I don't like that. Uh, I think I want to solve that problem. It starts um, creating something, and then... Uh, kind of interesting, and then it starts analyzing it, relating to your childhood. Now, that may be useful. It can be useful, of course, but it isn't this practice. So what we're learning is how to sit and to allow the mind to empty itself of itself, of its own content. Now, what is needed, and here's this, don't make anything. Um, these are just words to try to help convey a certain attitude towards practice. Uh, I'm going to use a number of them. They're kind of synonymous, but each one has maybe a little bit of a different accent. They're words like innocent, which is not a good term for most people. It means naive. Those, that means you'll be taken advantage of. Okay. But here, we're trying to look at our life in a fresh way. If you like, more fashionable, beginner's mind, 
Many people know that from the book. It's a mind, you're looking at things not, from, not through the eyes of yesterday, all the accumulated knowledge and opinions and experiences that you've had. Uh, so let's say if you are going to observe fear, and if you're on this, if you're going to try to do Vipassana meditation, and you're human, probably you have some fear, and there is an art of learning how to observe it. Um, how do you do that? If you're observing it uh, through the eyes of Freud, or through even through the eyes of the Buddha, um, that may not work. Because observation, the observation I'm talking about, uh, has no uh, bias in it. It doesn't have that kind of a, a structure to it. What it is, it's innocent, it's open, uh, it's naked. So it's, in, in this sense, it would be looking at fear, your own fear, my own fear, as if for the very first time, with new eyes. It's not the eyes that have been educated about fear from all the books you've read, or even other experiences that you've had working with your own fear. Because in this moment, it's this fear. And this fear is the first time it ever came, and the last time. And so you have to come to it at, uh, with that kind of mind. It takes a while to refine attention, so that attention is that simple. It's, it's, it's attention that isn't making anything out of anything. It's just permitting what's there to be exactly what it is. For example, uh, if you take fear, you can learn, uh, I hope these words, for those of you who are new here, that the words at least make sense. It's possible to learn how not to be afraid of being afraid. That is, uh, if you're human, fear comes up. We cannot regulate what's going to turn up for us. What comes up is what comes up. It's one of the meanings of emptiness or anatta, is that we don't own the mind. It's impersonal and ungovernable. And what comes up is what comes up. Okay. So if fear comes up, I think I've lost my thread. I might need some help. A little bit. Thank you. Okay. So fear is a mind state. Uh, and when a mind state, uh, what's happening all day long and even into our, in the evening through dreams, the mind is visited by different mental formations that come and go, come and go, come and go. It's nonstop. It does stop sometimes. A few hours during sleep, which it totally revives us. And in meditation, the mind can come to a stop where there's no thinking. Okay. So should fear turn up, then if you're doing this practice of choiceless awareness, that means you, can you be aware of it? Why? Because it's there. Since there are no choices, all that you're aware of is what turns up. And how do you relate to it without being for or against it? Uh, you can learn the art <coughs> of seeing that there is fear in the mind. There is fear. It's a full acknowledgement of it. And yet, uh, you're quite peaceful. You're seeing that there's fear and there's the knowing of it. And uh, they're related, of course, closely and intimately related. But it's uh, because you're awake, it doesn't es escalate into be, oh my God, I'm afraid. And then before long you have terror. Now, if you're able to take a look at fear, and I'm just taking one, <coughs> what you will see, but test this out, see if it's true, 
what it is is very strong bodily sensations, very strong, dramatic, heart beating and so forth, pulse, and thoughts um, that are disabling. We have all these thoughts that are telling us things about ourselves and what's happening that disable us, that disempower us, that um, sap us, that uh, create even more fear. But that's what it is. So it's, by thoughts I mean emotions as well and bodily condition. That's what we call fear. Now, if you're not awake, then you get, you have made fear. And then you get caught in a story of fear where there's, it isn't meditation anymore. You're not mindful of what's happening because you're so identified with it that you're it. It's like a dream that's happening in the daytime, a frightening dream. Then it ends, as it does. It comes to an end, and then the mind can concoct a new happy ending dream because the fear is gone. Oh, great. And then it will start something else. The path is waking up. It's not happy ending dream or nightmare. It's waking up from the whole thing. I don't know if this uh, adds anything to your clarity. Uh, the same with confusion. Remember we mentioned that earlier? The mind can be confused, but you don't have to freak out because it's confused. You can begin to learn, oh, look at that. The mind is just very confused right now. You pull over to the side of the road, you know, like something's wrong with your car, because there, there is. And if possible, you don't act with that mind, because where, where could that go? And uh, somehow at the core, there's no problem, and yet the mind is confused, but that isn't typically what happens. When we're confused, we get very upset that we're confused, and we either deny it or we prematurely jump into some action that isn't, doesn't come from clear clarity. It comes from the same old confused mind, but at least it lays our mind to rest, and we can tell other people, oh yeah, no, I'm going to law school, definitely, no problem. <laughs> I thought you didn't have a clue as to what you want to do. Yeah, that was, just, that was yesterday. Now everything's, everything is, I'm just talking about myself. I went to law school. Nothing wrong with law school, except for me. Okay. Okay. So, uh, in this practice of choiceless awareness, uh, we're learning the art of um, being unpretentious. We're not trying to be someone else. The art is learning how to be yourself. Strange that we need training to learn how to be ourself. Uh, what else could we be? I mean, that's who, but we do. We have a lot of uh, aspirations and yearnings and fabrications and fantasies and dreams, and uh, you know, as well as I do. And so, uh, this second part of the practice is taking the calm and concentration and uh, allowing the mind to unravel, in a sense, to roam freely and to establish a friendly relationship with all those. Uh, visitors, all those characters who are in the mind, allowing them to roam freely and when they come up to establish a friendly relationship. Because after all, it's all us. It's just a one-person show. So it's, we're, we're making friends with ourselves, but it's very concrete. It's a particular mind state that you have not been able to face for a long time, and now you're learning how to make room for it. So that the mind, the heart really, gets bigger and bigger, so there's room for whatever turns up. And that's the direction the practice goes in. If you make friends with these states, it's not a problem anymore. 
The problem is that we're at war with ourselves. And as a result, we're at war with each other. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.